Hi, everybody. Welcome again. Happy Mother's Day to everybody who's in this room. Um, as I, we're about to dig into this text today. We're in the book of Philemon. So go ahead, and if you have your Bibles, you can open up to, up to the book of Philemon. It's our third and final week studying this book. One chapter. Incredible book that I think we've learned quite a bit about together, but we are going to finish it off today. If you need a Bible, go ahead and raise your hand. Uh, before I dig in, I want to take a moment and pray, but I also just uh, pastorally want to just take a moment and, and kind of guide us together as a church. Uh, as we celebrate Mother's Day today, uh, this is a, a great day for celebrating some of the hardest working people we'll ever meet, moms in this room. Uh, it's also a day that can come for a lot of folks in this room just with a lot of pain and with a lot of baggage. And I want to take a moment and just recognize that as a church family. One of the things that Scripture calls us to do in 2 Corinthians chapter 1 is that to, we're called to comfort those with the same comfort we've received from Jesus. So those who need comforting, we actually, because we've received comfort from Christ, now offer that comfort to others. Today, while it's a day of celebrating and a day of you know, spending time with family for many for many others, days like Mother's Day can be a, a, a sore reminder of uh, pain in people's lives. Uh, perhaps that's for some of you. Perhaps your relationship with your mom is not that great. Perhaps you've lost your mom. Uh, perhaps you have a deep desire to be a mother. Uh, but as so many in this church are working through infertility and, and struggling through that pain and and for wherever you are in this space today, we want to know that we love you deeply and that this is a community that not only celebrates well, but recognizes reality and receives grace from Jesus and then comforts others with that grace. And so I invite you into this family today. If in any way you're experiencing that kind of pain, I want to make sure you know we want to love you well. We want to be community for you well. We want to bring you in well, and we want to love you with the gospel well. And so together as a family, can we just pray over our time in the Word and pray that we would be a church that comforts others well. Heavenly Father, you are so good to us. As 2 Corinthians 1 reminds us, the comfort we've received from Jesus Christ, we now get to comfort others with. God, the grace we've received, we get to pour that grace out into others' lives. And so, Jesus, we pray that this would be that kind of community. For those who are just dealing with internal pain today, thinking about that word, mother, God, we pray that this would be that one space, the gathering of the saints together to sit underneath the authority of your word, that this would be that one space where the family of God comes together and says, I see that pain and I meet it with community, with love, with the gospel, with grace, with faith, and just with an overwhelming sense of you are not alone. And so God, in this space, would you have your way with this community? For those who have pain today, would you comfort them, Jesus? Even beyond the comfort we can offer, would you be the great comforter? And God, as we dig into your word right now, we expect nothing less than to be changed by you. Because your word does that. It's a sword. It pierces through right to the very core of our being. And so, Jesus, would you just have your way? Would you change us? Would we leave here as people who are just marked because your word had its way with us? That's what we desire. In Jesus' name, amen. In the old days, uh, in the kind of ancient days of empires and of kings, uh, one thing that would happen as history unfolded is that as, as kingdoms would expand, as empires would expand, they'd take over new territory and they'd take over new lands and they'd kind of find themselves in all different types of cultures and people with different backgrounds. 
And communication was hard back in those days. You know, the, the quickest way to get information from the king in one location to somewhere on the farthest outreaches, outskirts of the empire, was by sending travelers on horseback. And it could take weeks to get a simple bit of information out to the farthest parts of the kingdom. And so kings and emperors would have difficult times consolidating their empire, making sure that everyone knew wherever you were in this empire, you knew who was king, who made the law, and how you were supposed to live. And so what they would do in those days is they would erect statues of the king all throughout the the land. Wherever they took over a new land and wherever they proclaimed that this new area is now under the jurisdiction of this particular emperor, they'd go in there and they'd place a statue of that emperor in that land. And what it was supposed to do is be a, a visual reminder an image of the king, so to speak. It was supposed to be an image of the king so that everyone would know this land is underneath his jurisdiction. He's the one that speaks. He's the one who makes the rules. He's the one who's ultimately in charge. Romans chapter 8, verse 29 reads this way. For those whom he foreknew, he also predestined to be conformed to the image of his son in order that he might be the firstborn among many brothers. Christians are image bearers of Jesus. Just as kings in those days would go out and they'd set up statues of themselves so that everyone who was around knew this land is this particular king's, so are you as a follower of Christ, an image of your king. Only Christ hasn't just set up statues of himself, static, unmovable, non-living statues to reflect his kingdom. That's an earthly way of doing things. Rather, he's set apart you as a life, as a living person, to go out with the message of Jesus Christ, with a lifestyle that reflects the grace that you've received, so that wherever you go, people look in your life and say, that one belongs to the king. That one belongs to the king. Wherever you go, you proclaim his jurisdiction. Wherever you go, you proclaim his law. Wherever you go, you proclaim he's the one you report to. Let me ask you this morning, in what ways does your life serve as an image of Christ? I want you to really think about that. In what ways do people look in on your life as a follower of Jesus Christ and say, that one belongs to Jesus? I agree or I disagree with the way they live, but one thing's for sure, he or she belongs to Jesus. How is the gospel transforming your actions, your love, your way of thinking? How is the gospel transforming the way you love your family, the way you love your spouse, the way you love your neighbors? How is the gospel transforming the way you interact with society around you? Is it changing you? We're called to be images of Christ wherever we go. Today we're closing out this precious three-week journey through this little book in the Bible called Philemon. And for many of you, it may have been an unread chapter in the Bible. Maybe this was one of those kind of unbended pages in your Bible. I hadn't gotten much read time. And, and it's this amazing journey we've taken because we found this theme of forgiveness woven through it. God's given us a whole book on forgiveness, but he didn't give it in the form of doctrine or of lessons or of seminars or of, you know, little quotable information about how you forgive somebody. God gave us an entire book of the Bible, this whole letter, all about forgiveness in the form of a practical letter from one man to another man about what real biblical forgiveness looks like. And over the last few weeks, we've studied a lot together. I hope you've been changed as I have. In week one, we looked at the conditions of the human heart that must be true of you if you're going to be someone who's learning to biblically forgive. 
Not the way the world thinks about forgiveness. I'm talking about the way God thinks of forgiveness. What's got to be true of you if you're a person who's learning how to forgive that way? Last week, we took a time and we looked through this whole letter and we pulled out four qualities, four particulars that should be being lived out in when we think about forgiveness. How do we forgive somebody and what has to take place in that journey of forgiveness? And one thing we've seen, for certain, one thing we've seen is that Christians receive forgiveness first from Jesus and then that changes the entire perspective. What that means is that when we've been abused or when we've been victimized or when we've been hurt by someone we know or love, everything's different for a Christian because of the cross. Because Jesus has poured out his forgiveness to us, we now have this new perspective where we process how do we forgive others who tremendously hurt us. Man, this has been hard. And I tell you one more time, I am on a journey with my wife of learning how to do this well, particularly because of these last three weeks. Today, as we finish this story up, I have been moved uh, by another preacher, a man named Haddon Robinson, who gave a wonderful sermon on this book. And Haddon Robinson does what I think is very important for us to do, is to really slow down. I want to sear this book into your memory. I want to make sure that for the rest of your life, you can never say, I'm not sure what Philemon's about. So what I want to do today is I want to take our time and go through this story. Keep in mind, much of the story is not necessarily given to us in story format in the book of Philemon. Rather, what we have is kind of the ability to piece together what was the setting and what was taking place that caused Paul to write this letter to Philemon. So I want to tell you this story, and then I want to show you two particular ways which Paul is living out as a reflection, his image-bearing of Christ from this letter. So let's dig into this story. Onesimus was a young man. He he was a young man struggling to get by. In those days, for a man like Onesimus, it was hard to find work. He didn't necessarily have an education. He didn't have the network that many people throughout the Roman Empire at that time might have had that could get ahead. And so finding meaningful work was difficult for a guy like Onesimus. And so what he did was he bonded himself in servitude to a man named Philemon. He became a bondservant. And the way that worked is that you would write a contract with a man who owned a home and who was hiring you to work in his house, and you'd write a contract for a certain amount of years. And then you'd go and you'd live under his roof, and most of your pay would come in the form of good food and a place to eat, and perhaps even the opportunity to get ahead, to get an education, to to build another skill while you were in the process of serving in another man's home. It was good work for a guy like Onesimus who might not have much other meaningful work. He took this job under this man Philemon's home. He was working with a number of other bond servants at the time in this home, helping Philemon run the home. And one of those things that Onesimus realized early on about Philemon was that Philemon was one of those crazy Christians in the Roman Empire. He, he was one of those guys that was just marked by following Jesus In fact, Philemon used his home, the very home where Onesimus was working as a bondservant. Philemon would use his home once a week to get a bunch of other Christians together and talk about Jesus, this Christ who they said they followed. You know, Onesimus wouldn't be caught dead talking about Christianity. I mean, he that wasn't his gig, right? But but He didn't want to lose his job, and he certainly didn't want to be a troublemaker within the own household where he had to live. He was under contract to be there for a number of years longer. So he just kind of let them do their own thing. Whenever the church would meet in Philemon's home, he'd kind of go off to his other thing and and just let them be. But one thing caught Onesimus' mind. Philemon was a changing man. 
You know, religion was doing Philemon good. He, he was becoming more gentle. He was becoming slower to anger. He noticed the way that Philemon was treating his wife was changing. There was this gentleness with his wife that was clearly changing from the first day that Onesimus had met him. And, and he was moved by this change in Philemon. One morning, Onesimus began realizing that something was stirring in his heart. He was this young guy, and he felt like he had locked himself into this contract, and he couldn't get out of it. But he felt like he had so much to offer and so much to explore in the world. He, he, he felt like he was growing impatient with his spot in life. He wanted more. He wanted to see more of the world. But he didn't know what to do. He knew he had a few years left on his contract, and he couldn't wait that long. He had no money, so what would he do? If he managed to get out of his contract, it's not like he could earn his way anywhere else. So he came up with a plan. One day while Philemon was out of the house, he hated this because he really respected Philemon as a man, but, but he had to get out of here. So he waited till Philemon and his family was out of the house and he grabbed a pillowcase. He filled it up with as much as he could of Philemon's house. All the stuff that Philemon had that he could get his hands on, he threw into a pillowcase. And, and, and he figured, you know, Philemon's got more than enough. He, he's sure he'll miss this, but, but this is my one shot. And he ran away. He ran out of the house as much of Philemon's stuff as he could. He ran off and he was trying to decide where to go in a small city like Colossae where they were living. You know, it was kind of a more rural environment. Everyone would know each other, so it's not like he could just run off to the other side of Colossae and think he could get by with the situation. Everyone was, no, he was the runaway guy from Philemon's house. What, what, what would he do? So he said, you know, I, there's a bigger city. I'll go to Rome. So Onesimus, with the, the only money he had, which was Philemon's stolen stuff, ran away, ran off to Rome. It was the biggest city in the empire, and he, he knew of a couple other people that had made it to Rome, and, and somehow they had found a way to get by. So he just decided, I'll find my lot in Rome. Rome was the kind of place where a guy like Onesimus, a thief like Onesimus, could get around pretty quietly. Lots of people, busy city, lots going on, lots of trade and commerce, potentially lots of opportunities. But for a guy like Onesimus as well, it was a chance to dig in and he could have anything he wanted. If, if he wanted women, he could have as many women as he wanted. If he wanted entertainment, there was as much entertainment as he wanted. The Roman gladiator games were taking place in that game. He could fill his heart with as much entertainment as he wanted. It was a place to get lost and live large. He used the stuff that he had stolen from Philemon to, to sell and to have a little money. But he quickly realized Rome was more expensive than just a handful of cash to start off with. There, he needed meaningful work to keep that income going, but he didn't have much. Soon enough, he found himself in even a worse situation than when he was back in Philemon's home. What would he do? He didn't have money, and now he was stuck. He had made some friends, and so he sat down one day with one of his buddies, just talking about life, trying to figure out what to do, sitting down over lunch with his buddy, drinking an iced tea, and he says, hey, you know, I just don't know what I'm going to do. I, life's hard, and, and Rome's been tougher on me than I thought it would be. And the buddy says, you know, Onesimus, there's this guy you should see. It, it's a friend of a friend. His name's Paul. And funny enough, this guy, he's on house arrest on the other side of Rome. But I think you should go see him. He's an interesting guy, and everyone who talks to him says that he's really wise. He gives meaningful advice to those who come and, and sit and talk to him. So Onesimus said, well, I got nothing to lose. I'm always up for a good conversation. So Onesimus made his way over to Philemon on the other side of Rome. And when he met when he, uh, over to Paul on the other side of Rome, 
And when he met Paul, Paul was under house arrest. And the way house arrest worked in those days is that they'd keep that person under house arrest on the third floor of a building. And and that person would be chained to two Roman guards at all times. It was a very awkward moment for for Onesimus to be in, to kind of be in this broken place. But he met Paul and he introduced himself. And Paul was just like his friend had described him. Man, the guy was wise. He was the kind of guy that Onesimus could just open up to and start having meaningful conversation about life. And, and Paul had good advice. He had really good advice about how to live and what, should, what he should do. And Paul and Onesimus began talking every day, having these conversations. This guy was brilliant, one of the smartest men he had ever met. Well-read, well-versed, well-understood of the ways of the world. And Paul began to diagnose Onesimus' problems spot on. He was one of those guys that Onesimus almost didn't even have to say what was wrong with him. Paul was like reading his heart before he even came in the room. Paul knew all about him. It was as if he already knew the condition of Onesimus's heart. Paul was able to spot on diagnose Onesimus's issues. And slowly, Paul was sharing the good news of Jesus Christ with Onesimus. They'd be meeting week in, week out, and, and slowly, Paul was teaching what Jesus Christ had done, teaching that That Jesus had offered forgiveness to a man like Onesimus, a thief like Onesimus, a man who was broken, who needed a new life, who who needed a, a start to actually build fullness in his life and find meaning in his life. Soon enough, in that third floor apartment in the back part of Rome, Onesimus made a decision to follow Jesus Christ. Right there, Paul prayed with Onesimus to receive Jesus as his Lord and Savior. Well, from that point on, Onesimus was eager to live out his new faith. He he was eager to figure out, what does it look like for me now, this guy who has been transformed by Jesus Christ, to live it out? So he kind of attached himself to Paul. And he just said, you know what, Paul? I'm going to sit underneath you and I'll do anything you need. So Onesimus was busy bringing letters from Paul all over the city, doing little jobs because Paul couldn't leave his house. And so a man like Onesimus was very helpful to a man like Paul. He could send him with instructions to other people around the city. Paul was becoming like a father to Onesimus. And Onesimus was becoming like a son to Paul. There was a deep love forming for each other where they were very respectable and and kingdom work was getting done between the two of them. It was quite remarkable. But one day Onesimus is coming back from delivering a letter to Paul and he just had this angst in his heart. This conviction that he had not been fully true with Paul. He hadn't told him all of his story. There was parts of his story that he was a bit ashamed of and he felt like he couldn't go any longer without sharing the truth of some of his background with this man who he respected. But he was scared to do it because he knew that if he, if he really opened up, if he was truly vulnerable and he shared his background, well, in the Roman Empire, it didn't go well for people who ran away from being a bondservant, especially those who stole. In fact, that could be a capital crime. And he wanted to be honest, he wanted to be vulnerable, but he didn't want to get crucified for it. But he felt Paul was a trustworthy guy. Paul had earned his trust. So one day, Onesimus goes back to Paul. He says, Paul, i got to be honest with you. My background is not as clean as I may have shared with you. Paul immediately starts laughing. Ha! You're in good company with me, Onesimus. Trust me, my background's not that clean either. Keep in mind, I used to kill Christians, okay? So whatever you got is not going to be as bad as what I used to do. Onesimus chuckled. He said, all right, good point, good point. Good point, Paul. Paul, I'm not from Rome. I'm from another city. I don't know if you know about it. I'm from a city called Colossae. You're from Colossae? Oh, I know Colossae. I know Colossae. Well, I got some friends in Colossae. Well, Paul, uh, well, I ran away from there. 
uh, I was a bondservant to a man named Philemon. You know Philemon? <laughs> Paul says, you, you know Philemon? I led Philemon to Christ years ago. Is that church still taking place in his house? I, I, I'm the, I, helped the, I helped him come to Jesus Christ, just like I've been sitting down with you, walking through the faith. I sat down with him years ago. This is amazing. This is God's sovereignty. I can't believe he's brought us together. You can just imagine Onesimus at this point feeling even more guilty about what he's about to share. Paul, Philemon's a great guy. I stole from Philemon. When I ran away from there, man, I, I, I stole him. I stole everything I could from his house. I loaded up. I stole all his goods, and I ran away from there. The only reason I'm here is because I got by with some of the money I stole from Philemon. And frankly, Paul, I don't know what to do. I'm afraid to go back. If I go back, I don't know how he'll receive me. I don't know what he's going to do. Will he hand me over the law? Will he? I don't know. But I love what I'm doing with you, Paul. I love this. I love this work. I love my Christian faith. What do I do? Paul's first words are this, Paul, Onesimus, as a Christian man, you have to confront the wrongs of your life. What you, when you do something wrong, you're a Christian. You, you don't just let it linger. You take care of them, even faults from the past. Once you meet Jesus Christ, you confront those you've hurt, been hurt. You've hurt. And, and that's called repentance, Onesimus. I want you to go back to, Paul, to, to Philemon, but do me a favor. Go grab me a pen. <laughs> I'm going to write Philemon a letter. I know him well. I know how to speak to Philemon's heart. So Paul grabbed a pen. He said, penned out a letter real quick. He said, Onesimus, head straight to Colossae. Take this letter with you. Talk to Philemon. Before you do anything, have him read this letter. So Onesimus worked his way back to Colossae. He was trembling. He was utterly afraid of what was about to happen. But he had this letter. It was hope that maybe, maybe this letter contained something in it that would change the circumstance. He makes his way back towards Philemon's home. And he trembles, walks up the doorstep. He remembered the door. He, he had worked this house so well, and he remembered the creak of the door as he walked up each of the steps. And he, he made his way, and trembling, he knocked on the door. Philemon opened it. And you can just picture this scene, Onesimus terrified. And Paul and Philemon opening the door and seeing Onesimus and, and suddenly being filled with an anger. This was an old anger. Philemon had put this kind of anger away long ago, but the guy who had robbed him blind was standing right there in front of him, and he just knew he was angry at him. And Onesimus could see the anger building up in Philemon right away. And Onesimus kind of just cowered just a little bit and said, Philemon, I'm so sorry for what I did. I know it was wrong, but do me a favor. Before you do anything, before you do anything, will you read this letter? I think it will help a little bit. Please, before we even talk, will you just read this letter? Philemon takes the letter. He opens it. And he's looking suspiciously down at Onesimus, wondering what he's going to do and what this letter could possibly say that would change the fact that Philemon's angry right now. He reads the first verse. Paul, a prisoner of Christ Jesus, and Timothy, our brother, to Philemon, our beloved fellow worker, Onesimus, you know Paul? How, how could you know Paul? Is he in prison again? He, how did he get in prison? Onesimus says, you know, he was sharing all about Jesus Christ down in Jerusalem. And now he's, they, 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 they charted him up to Rome. He's waiting in house arrest to be heard before uh, Caesar's government. What was going to happen to him? Philemon looked at him. I can't believe you know Paul. He kept reading the letter and he gets down to verse 9 and 10 and he reads this. 
Yet for love's sake, I prefer to appeal to you. I, Paul, an old man and now a prisoner also for Christ Jesus. I appeal to you for my child Onesimus, whose father I became in my imprisonment. Onesimus, have you accepted Jesus Christ? Have you believed on Christ? Onesimus says, Philemon, I have. Things have changed with me, Philemon. I'm not who I once was. I know you knew I was the most rebellious of all the workers in your house, but I'm different now, Philemon. You can just imagine Philemon saying, Onesimus, this is wonderful news. Trust me, this is wonderful news, but, but Onesimus, you still owe me a lot of money. Yeah, yeah, I'm, we got to make things right between you and me. You still owe me a lot of money. Don't get me wrong, this is great news, but you're going to have to pay this debt off, Onesimus. Philemon continued to read the letter, and then he came to verses 18 to 20. It says this, If he, Onesimus, has wronged you at all, or if he owes you anything, charge that to my account. I, Paul, write this with my own hand, I will repay it. To say nothing of your owing me, even your own self. Yes, brother, I want some benefit from you in the Lord. Refresh my heart in Jesus Christ. Now, if we can just hold the narrative there for just a moment. What is Paul offering to do for Onesimus here? Paul is saying, look, I've got a positive account. And Onesimus has a negative account with you. And here's what I want to do. I want to transfer from my, my account over to Onesimus' account. And notice, he doesn't just say, I'll pay it off, does he? He doesn't just say, I'll pay off his debt. He says, charge it to me as if it was my debt that I owed you. He says, make that mine, place that burden on my shoulders, and I will pay it. You know, it's interesting, you got to wonder if Philemon actually made Paul pay off someone else's debt. Think about the circumstance for just a moment. Philemon, this wealthy homeowner in the city of Colossae, who has more than enough. He's got people working for him, he's got a home that a church meets out of, he's got more than enough. Paul, the Apostle Paul who's in house arrest in Rome. And in other letters, when he's in house arrest in Rome, he asks for someone to bring him a warm coat because it gets so cold in his, in his cell he's staying in. Saying, hey, wealthy Philemon, charge Onesimus' debt to me. I'll pay it for you. I wonder what that did to a man like Philemon's heart. As he began to think through what, 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 what Paul was actually offering here. How Paul was flipping the power structures around a little bit, wasn't he? Here was Paul with all the power. Here was Paul with all the authority. And here, or, I mean, here was Philemon with all the power and authority. And here's Paul in house arrest. And here's the guy who should have nothing saying, I'll pay you back, wealthy Philemon. I'll do it on behalf of Onesimus. See, what I want you to see here is that Paul is behaving as an image bearer of Christ, isn't he? Isn't this exactly what Jesus Christ has done for us? Paul is living out in a very practical way as an image bearer of Jesus Christ the exact transfer of debt that Jesus has done for each and every person who's placed their faith in, in him. See, each of us had a debt, an unpayable debt. In fact, we could go so far as to say each of us were prodigals like Onesimus who had run away from a good and godly master, a good and godly God who had all this authority over us and we ran away from that from him. We rebelled and we charged up an incredible debt that we could never pay on our own. But God, in his loving mercy and rich kindness to us, what does he do? He sends Jesus Christ, not just to pay off our debt, but to take our debt upon his own shoulders. That's the cross. Make sure you get this. That's the cross. 
The cross is the place where one man who had a positive account with God took our place where we had a negative account with God and didn't just say, I'll pay it off as a ransom, said, I'll load it on my shoulders. Father, charge it to my account. On the cross, all the wrath that is owed you and me, the place where we belong in separation from God is poured down on one man, Jesus Christ, and he pays it all in full. Everything we could ever owe God is paid in full. Not one cent left, no matter who you are, whether you're Philemon or you're Onesimus or you're Paul. We all stand in equal footing underneath the cross with debt paid in full. It's been transferred. Paul is now living as an image bearer of Christ. He's taken the exact way Jesus has changed him and he's applying it into a real world scenario into a real broken moment between brothers in Christ. Paul could have said to Onesimus, figure it out, Onesimus. You're a Christian now. Go make it better. Couldn't he? He wouldn't have been wrong to say that. Paul could have said to Onesimus, hey, you screwed this up, Onesimus. Now you've got to make it right. He could have said that. We could put a lot of Bible behind that, to be honest with you. But Paul doesn't say that. He enters into Onesimus' suffering with him. Even while he was in his own suffering. Do you notice that? Paul didn't wait until he was out of house arrest, till life was in order, till he had everything figured out and he had time to think through, how am I going to help other people now? He was in house arrest with a possible end of that house arrest to be crucifixion himself. But there in that broken third floor room, chained to two Roman guards, he enters into someone else's brokenness. And says, I'll take your pain on my own shoulders. This is exactly what the implication of the gospel is. That those who have been shown great mercy show great mercy to others. Those who have been shown great comfort show great comfort to others. This is so like what Jesus taught, isn't it? One day Jesus taught a parable. We know it as the parable of the Good Samaritan. Let me recount this story to you. Luke chapter 10. Jesus tells this parable. He says, a man was coming down from Jerusalem to Jericho. And he fell among robbers who stripped him and beat him and departed, leaving him half dead. Now by chance a priest was going down that road, and when he saw him, he passed by on the other side. Imagine that priest. He sees a man laying half dead on the other side of the road, and he walks by, and he's kind of too clean to get involved with something like that. It looks a little too broken, too messy. Frankly, it looks a little scary, so just kind of pick up the speed and walk along the other direction. Besides, he's probably busy. He's a priest. So, likewise, a Levite, when he came to the place and saw him, passed by on the other side. Well, talk about guys who were busy. Levites were super busy. They had tons of work to get done, both in society, training up people on the ways of righteousness, as well as within the temple courts. Man, he was busy. He didn't have time to stop and help that guy. But a Samaritan, a Samaritan was the most unlikely person in this scenario. For most Jewish people, most people of God in that day, the Samaritans were considered kind of half-breeds. They were kind of Jewish, kind of not Jewish, didn't quite know what to do with the Samaritans. A Samaritan, as he journeyed, came to where he was, and when he saw him, he had compassion. You know what that word means? Compassion? Suffering with. Calm. With. Passion. Suffering. He had compassion, a desire to suffer with. He went to him, and he bound up his wounds, pouring on oil and wine. Then he set him on his own animal and brought him to an inn and he took care of him. And the next day he took out two dinar and he gave them to the innkeeper saying, Take care of him and whatever more you spend, I will repay you when I come back. Jesus said, Which of these three do you think proved to be a neighbor to the man who fell among the robbers? And he said, The, one, the other man said, The one who showed him mercy. 
And then what does Jesus say? Catch this. Jesus says to him, you go and do likewise. We talk about commands that Jesus gives regularly in this church. Here's one of them. You go, that's an imperative, and do likewise. All around us, every one of us, if you're a follower of Christ, you have received a transfer of debt. You had an incredible, unpayable amount of debt before you and God, and Jesus has paid it all on none of your work. It wasn't by good works. It wasn't by because he chose well when he picked you. It was because you were a runaway servant, and he entered into your brokenness and took it on for you. And as followers of Christ, especially those, not especially those, but in a unique way, those who are living in a city like Chicago, we are surrounded, literally, in every window you see, in every high-rise building, there is person among person among person among person among person of people suffering, people with challenges in their life, Onesimus-like situations, where they have debt, where they have hurt, where they have pain, where they have struggles, where they don't know Jesus even, and they're wrestling through, how do I do life? A city like Chicago can be a broken place, can it? But here's what God's done. He's got a whole bunch of warriors called Christians that he's peppered throughout the city. In every one of these high-rises, in every one of these homes, in every one of these apartments, he's got his man or he's got his woman right there. A person who's received the love of Jesus, the love of Christ, the comfort of a God who says, despite the fact that you were broken when I did it, I paid your debt for you. And then he says, look, go love people radically. Just do it. This is what it looks like to be an image bearer of Christ. But back to the narrative for just a moment. Paul is an image bearer of Christ because he transfers the debt. He says, I'll pay it on your behalf. But it doesn't stop there. Philemon must have been in awe reading that. He must have just had this moment thinking of Paul in this little jail cell house in Rome saying, I'll pay Onesimus' debt. He must have chuckled because he knew Paul well. He must have thought, that guy, he's always outdoing us. But then he kept reading. He says, Philemon, or Onesimus, look, okay, Paul, pay your debt. Look, get back, just get to the house with the other bond servants. We'll deal with this later. He starts to put the letter away, but he gives it one more look over, and before he can put the letter away fully, he reads verse 17. So if you consider me your partner, receive him as you would receive me. Philemon put the letter down for a second, and he scratched his head. Receive Onesimus as I would receive Paul. What does that mean? How would I receive Paul? And then if Paul just wanted to make sure that Philemon was getting the point, he says in verse 22, at the same time, prepare a guest room for me, for I'm hoping that through your prayers I'll be graciously given to you. I think that's almost a little jab from Paul, just so you know, to Philemon, just reminding him exactly how Philemon would treat Paul. He'd put him up in the guest room. He'd be a guest of honor in Philemon's house. Philemon looks down at Onesimus, one of his bondservants, a prodigal, a runaway, a thief, who's now received Jesus, and he's got to treat him as a guest of honor? Philemon calls up to his wife. He says, hey, honey, we got a guest of honor here tonight. Can we get the guest room ready? Let's get this place ready to go. Philemon's wife comes down, brings Onesimus up, says, Onesimus, so great to see you. Come on up. I got the guest room ready. She puts a towel out for him. She puts a bowl of fresh water out for him. She goes... Onesimus, is there something you'd like for dinner tonight? <laughs> Onesimus, being a bondservant, knowing how wonderful a cook Onesimus, or Philemon's wife is, says, I've, I've smelled your lamb 20 times. If, I don't want to push my luck, but if you're offering, I love that lamb shank. 
she says, it would be my honor. It would be my honor for a guest like you. One of the most amazing parts of the good news of Jesus Christ is that we've not only been forgiven, but we get treated as a guest of honor at the king's table. This is what God has done for you. He hasn't just come down, paid your penalty on the cross, and said, now you're forgiven. Here's your entry pass into heaven. He said this, Jesus' righteousness becomes yours. Jesus' inheritance becomes yours. All that was true of Jesus, the same Holy Spirit that activated Jesus to be able to live out a life that was honoring to God, I'm going to pour that in abundance on your life, and it's all going to be access to you. You name it, it's yours. You're a guest of honor in heaven. You're a son of the king. You know what? I adopt you into the family. Jesus was the rightful son, and now I'm treating you as a son. I'm treating you as a daughter. Come on in, and there's no difference. You get the love of a son or a daughter because I'm adopting you into my family, says the father. You get all the blessings of heaven. What gifts are there in heaven? What beauty is there in heaven? It's all yours. Nothing is lacking. It's the fullness of heaven. The Greek word for that is the pleroma. It's almost the essence of heaven itself. It all gets given to you. That's what Jesus has done for you. And now Paul, as an image bearer of Jesus Christ, looks out into this awkward power structure between a man like Philemon, who had all the rights of a guy who was powerful in the eyes of the world, and a guy like Onesimus, who had all the rights of a guy who really didn't have much power in the world. And he says, hey, in this kingdom, this is how we treat each other. We're guests of honors. What does it look like to be an image bearer of Christ in this way? So often in our life, we give our leftovers to other people, don't we? When we try to love people, we have our excess, we have just the things we're trying to get rid of, and then we just say, hey, look, this is how I can love, this is how I can be a good Christian, just kind of give out of my excess. There's a wonderful story from a man that I just treasure deeply. This man, a few years ago, had a situation arise in his church. A man who actually had been his discipler, who had kind of been a person who was shaping him in Jesus Christ for many years. And, and they were in need of a car. And this man had a, an extra van that he kept. And he wasn't too fond of the van. I was asking him about this story recently. He wasn't too fond of the van. It wasn't his favorite vehicle in the whole world. But it was sitting there. And he actually was thinking about getting rid of the van. And then it came up that someone in the church needed a car. And in fact, it was the man who had discipled him. So as a good Christian, he said, hey, look, I got this extra van I'm trying to get rid of anyways, and you need a car. And so out of a great gift of charity, just a wonderful, incredible gift. I mean, a van's not a cheap thing. He gives this gift. He meets and he says, I want you to have this. And you can imagine the man who received the gift was just overwhelmed. What a blessing. We needed this, and look, the Lord provided. And they had this van for a number of months. But the giver of the gifts had this conviction from the Spirit that was just kind of growing because he's a follower of Christ. He's living underneath God's law. He's living underneath the Holy Spirit. And he had this conviction. Something was saying, you gave kind of out of your trash, in a sense, the, the thing you were getting rid of, that stuff that you actually didn't like. It was really easy for you to give that. It was just the excess, and you were getting rid of it anyways, and you gave that, and then you kind of made everyone feel good about yourself. And he had this conviction about it wrestled through that, prayed through it, and then he came to the decision he, he needed to actually treat this man like a guest of honor. And he went out and he purchased this man a new car. Gave this gift to this man. And you can imagine the overwhelming sense of, this is, t- this is too much that that man must have had. The wife came back a couple days later after receiving this gift and said, 
you got to know something that was happening. Someone in our small group, it, our other car was having issues. In fact, I, I don't know if it was broken down or if it was just having issues, but our small group had been praying this whole time that we would be, get, we, we'd be given a brand new car. And here he was listening to the Holy Spirit, not realizing that he was actually the answer to someone else's prayer the whole time. You know, isn't that how it happens? Could you imagine if we lived that way? You know, not everyone has the same means to be able to buy new cars for everybody. But if we lived in a sense of when we love somebody, we don't just give our excess, but we give as those who have received enormously from Jesus Christ. We give as those who are giving out of our first fruits to bless other people. I was reading a wonderful writer, a guy who most people have forgotten, Abraham Kuyper, a, a Danish-Dutch uh, writer and just incredible guy. He writes this about giving. He says, the holy art of giving for Jesus' sake ought to be much more strongly developed among us Christians. Never forget that all state relief for the poor is a blot on the honor of your Savior. Let that soak in for a second. Never forget that all state relief for the poor is a blot on the honor of your Savior. The fact that the government needs a safety net to catch those who would slip between the cracks of our economic system is evidence that I have failed to do God's work. The government cannot take the place of Christian charity. A loving embrace is not given with food stamps. The care of a community isn't provided with government housing. The face of our creator cannot be seen on a welfare voucher. What the poor need is not another government program. What they need is for Christians like me to honor our Savior. You know, the beautiful thing is that a man like Philemon and a man like Onesimus are made brothers in Christ. Isn't that true? He uses the word brother over and over again in this letter. While the rest of the world sees the difference between these two men, when they get underneath the cross, they realize we're family. And if you've got pain, in whatever circumstance there is, whether it's, a, it's poverty or whether it's pain from your riches or whether it's loss of a loved one or whether it's grief over pain in your marriage, what happens with family is that we step into other people's brokenness and the church is the solution. I need you to hear that, church. We cannot look to outside resources to be the solution to the problem of the pain in people's lives, thinking that's good enough. Someone else is going to take care of it. You're plan A. This is plan A in God's kingdom. The government's not plan A. Christians, the church, behaving as those who love radically because we've been loved radically. Image bearers of Jesus Christ, giving sacrificially. That's plan A. That's what Paul does for Onesimus, and that's the, the layer underneath the story of Philemon that we have to have seared into our minds. Paul, being an image bearer of Christ, we get to be little statues as images of Christ so that when people say, see the way we behave, they're seeing reflections of the one we honor and submit to, Jesus Christ. Will you pray with me? Heavenly Father, we... We need this so much. We need to be reminded of the words of this letter to Philemon that, that we are a changed people, that something is different about Christians, that we have been changed by Jesus, that our debt's been paid and we've been given a seat of honor at the table. God, that's our story. Would you seal that inside of us? Would you strip away every lie that says that's not true? We carry around so many lies from us. Lies from the devil that wants to convince us that somehow that can't be true. Somehow it's too good. Oh God, would you sear our hearts with the truth that you love us as sons and daughters. And then God, would you allow us to love others as sons and daughters too? Would you give us the love of our Savior towards others? 
that we would be little reflections, not replacing the gospel. No, the gospel is Jesus died for us. But an implication of that, God, is that we now live as image bearers of Christ. Let us sacrifice greatly for this work. Fill us by your spirit, we pray. In Jesus' precious name, amen.